Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 38. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, is uh, our friend Emmett. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Um, you may know Emmett from Letterboxd, <laughs> of other places. He was on I Twitter. I used to be on Twitter. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say I was popular on Twitter. I mean, I had like 500 followers before I deleted my account because I think Twitter was giving me brain damage. Um, but my ad on there used to be Emoji Lab. You may know me from that. Uh, that's also my handle on Letterboxd if you want to follow me. Um, I'm also pretty active on Instagram. Uh, my handle on there is Bootleg Bart with an underscore, but it's Bart spelled like the uh, the critic Roland Bart. All right. Uh, sounds good. I yeah. guess we're all plugged up then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we all have yeah. around 500 followers, too. Yeah, I think <laughs> we're all around 500, so I think it's time oh, okay. to, uh, you know, all quit at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably I mean, for the you, better. If you all sufficiently have brain damage, by all means. I've been thinking about at least locking the account for like a couple weeks, and I'm like, oh, but the podcast. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll, I'll take the extra 10 listens every week that come from me being on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I, I reached a point where I had no reason to be on the website anymore, so I was just like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so, the double feature that Emmett brought to us uh, is La Belle Noisus, uh the 91 Jacques Rivette film, and Crumb, the documentary on R. Crumb from 1994 by Terry Zweigoff. Uh, Emmett, why don't you tell us a little bit about what compelled you to uh, bring these two particular films to the pod? Uh, so the main reason that I wanted to do this is a double feature is because they're both films about gross old men who like drawing titties. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. We definitely um, love that type of yeah, stuff. So it's a rather ironic assessment. I, I uh, picked these two because I think they actually speak to each other in sort of an interesting way. They're both about art and artists and the struggles to create art and sort of the relationship between art and reality and the responsibility of artists and sort of everything that attends what being an artist is yeah and i'm pretty sure like most of what being an artist is is being like extremely horny uh, according to these two films <laughs> right but, but like i mean that's also evident in every other piece of art i've ever seen so it makes sense yeah it checks right. out i mean i feel like both of these pieces offer like uh, I mean, talking about getting brain damage from Twitter, um, I feel like there's a very contemporary uh, trend of people wanting uh, their artists to be good people and uh, like admirable in some fashion. And these are two shining examples of artists that kind of suck. <laughs> yeah, they, they both, the only thing, you know, it's not the only thing they share, but they share a compulsion. It's not, they don't make art because they feel like they have a, a deeper understanding of these things is that they really just have a compulsion to express themselves through these mediums right they just need to get it out exactly and i think uh rosenbaum draws like the art versus life uh like dichotomy i guess in that review and you know if you're looking at it th- from that perspective and then you pull it out to uh art versus twitter it's getting brain damage uh versus wanting brain and i think we can you know <laughs> clearly uh err on the side of art in that regard uh so to get exactly. right into the revette film uh labelle uh Noisus, i believe is how it's pronounced uh yeah it opens, uh, oddly enough, it it really, like, 
takes a while to reveal itself what it is. I love how it opens on English speaking kind of like spectators of two characters out in the garden. And it takes a while to get to the painter who is kind of the, well, of the two hands that guide this film, he is one of them. And I like how, you know, you're going to be there for four hours. So Rivette kind of lets you take your time to settle into what the movie's actually going to be. Yeah, the first hour to me really feels like sort of a Romare film in that sense. There's a lot of the walking, talking kind of stuff. Um, the like playful French parties kind of thing. Um, but then uh, in the second hour, it's that's when it becomes, I feel like, entirely its own. Yeah, and I like, I like how they talk about the painter, this big character before he even arrives, kind of hypes him up, and then he just uh, arrives just disheveled as fuck. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, was, I was actually going to bring out that I think that this is probably the best film that approaches being like a Romero film. Uh, the most, especially evident, like you were saying, in the first hour, but I do think sort of, sort of a lot of the scenes at the house, especially during the daytime, they're typically two shots of characters just reacting across the frame, which is, you know, very much att- attuned to the Romarian sensibility. But, you know, then you get these long passages that are just, you know, long takes of a process of the elaborate camera movements uh, outlining the characters' relationships through space and time that are just pure that. There's a lot of stuff that's like the conversation is kind of setting up the themes that are going to get drawn out throughout the movie, but they're also kind of reversed throughout the movie. Like early on, right? Uh, he asks uh, who would later become the model, Mary, and she hasn't been offered or accepted. Uh, if she would accept if Nicholas uh, like loved painting more than her, you know, and like this sacrifice, and you make it it makes you think that, you know, he, Nicholas, is going to be more involved as an artist, uh, and it almost seems like it's about him, and then you realize that it's the exact inverse, and he's going to lose her to a painting, but not his own, to another guy's painting. He's, you know, right. going to get cucked by this old master's painting strokes. Artistically. The yeah. worst way to get cucked. <laughs> uh, and at this point, you know, Fran Hopper, you know, he exclaims that he needs a masterpiece or nothing. He's in this kind of, he's in his late style uh, <laughs> era of his career where he's like pushing himself to these boundaries of his own, uh, you know, themes and whatever he worked on as an artist throughout his life. And he is stopping at nothing short of perfection, which is why he has had this painting, the titular La Belle uh, Noisus, like on hold for 10 years because I guess his wife kind of aged out of the role of being the model for this painting. Yeah. Also the way he speaks with these like grand artistic platitudes can be, you know, funny sometimes. And even early on, Marianne kind of is adverse to them and kind of halfway mocks them being the, the nuisance as yeah. the movie implies. <laughs> right. So, so what I was going to say is that I, that I, I find this film fascinating for a number of reasons. I think it's, it's one of the densest of Rivette's films. But what particularly drew me to it, so the, the first time that I watched this almost four years ago, I guess, just to, to give a bit of background, and almost four years ago to the day, actually, I checked Ooh. on Letterboxd, and my diary was like March 1st, 2016. So it's, sort of an odd coincidence in that way, but um, going back to to 2015, we're going to get in the time machine like you guys did a few episodes (laughs) ago. Um, So I I was living in New York City for uh, about six months, and uh, while I was living there, there was a retrospective that was programmed that was uh, a a 
basically all double features of, of Rivette and Lynch films. So there were seven Rivette films and seven Lynch films. Um, at the time, I was working at uh, IFC Center, and I'm going to let you guys in on a secret, but if you live in New York City and you work at one of the rep theaters there, you can get into screenings for free at the other ones. Um, so I basically took advantage of my ability to do that and went to every screening that I could uh, for that series. So I saw... Ten films in the series, four of them were by Rivette, and I thought six of the Lynch films. Um, and the Rivette films that I thought were almost like cinematic UFOs. Yeah. Uh, I just had no idea what, like, but before watching Rivette, Rivette sort of like central to my understanding of, of cinema and, and also the, my understanding of my own cinephilia. And I had basically no conception of it as I practice, and after encountering Rivette, basically started going completely fucking ape, um, just watching everything that I could get my hands on, um, but more to the point, after I watched those four Rivette films, I, I ended up watching Out One, and then I watched the other films that were available on Region One uh, DVD and Blu-ray at the time, which was a very small amount, and the first time that I watched what the Illinois is. I watched it on the crappy, like, it was just total shit, the, the New Yorker films DVD, and I was just totally entranced. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so part of what, what made me, what, or what fascinates me about the film so much is that it's almost like a, a reflection of, of Rivette looking at sort of the past 30 years of his career. So it was made in 1991, um, and to give, I guess, a bit of biographical information, so Rivette, you know, obviously was one of the, the main critics for Katia du Cinema. And, you know, he was also one of the most polemical and most extreme, and that sort of reflected in his filmmaking. And so he started with her songs to us and then just kept getting longer and more intense, you know, out one, Queen and Julia Bodine, Duel and Norwalk. Um, and during the making of Duel and Norwalk, uh, it was part of a... a uh, series of four films he was working on, uh, scenes of, from a parallel life. And after he made those two, he sort of had a nervous breakdown during the, the making of the third one. And it took him a while to recuperate. And this film sort of seems to be like a reflection on how far can an artist go? Are there limits to art? Did I go too far when I was younger? You know, can I ever recapture the, you know, the spirit of myself when I was a younger artist? Um, what's the relationship between uh, an artist and his art and actor and uh, director. Um, and I, I think the, I, I don't want to spoil the film for the listeners, but I think that the finale sort of reflects a, an episode in, in sort of like the, the event mythos, if you want to call it that, where uh, he excised a pivotal scene from out one because he thought he went too far, um, which is sort of re- um, reflected in in the the climax of the the film. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, like <laughs> the, from the I, from my perspective, I've only seen two Rivette films before this, so I didn't have okay. kind of the read of his whole filmography building up to this. But I right. can definitely see it just from the bit I have on him. Like even the tossed off line of dialogue uh, that Marianne gives about 
being at like a Catholic school growing up, like uh, shot me right back to watching The Nun. Uh, and I've seen, right. I've seen that one and I've seen Celine and Julie. And I think that one, you could even say he goes too far for people to understand. I mean, I loved the movie, but like the question of him going too far is obviously present in all of the work that I've seen from him, at least. So it makes a lot of right. sense for him to be kind of dwelling on it uh, over this movie, which did he go too long? Uh, <laughs> I, I thought the length was great, actually. Uh, and I... I love when I fucking pause and then I realize that it's an intermission, basically. Like the title card for part two came up. Yeah. Uh, right when I right. was pausing it to walk to the store and get a soda. I was like, damn, <laughs> that's perfect. That's the gods of cinema. Uh, the stars aligning. <laughs> yeah. Red told you, go take a break. Go take yeah. a breather. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not in the theater. You don't have to sit in for one sitting. But for uh, Selena and Julie, I did see that in the theater. And it was a very weird experience because... It was on 35 millimeter, but one of the reels was missing. So like, and I think it was like the fifth one. So about, I guess, 80 minutes into the movie, they changed over to a Blu-ray player and like (laughs) uh, played played 20 minutes of a disc and then hopped back. And then one of the projectors gave out. So then for the rest of it, like two reels after that, the last, I guess, four reels, uh, they had to like take a two minute break uh, every twenty minutes to like let the projector cool down and spool up the next one. Uh, so it was a very damaged, uh, twisted screening <laughs> of the right. classic. No, yeah, at the end. That sounds like a nightmare. And if we're gonna get specific, yeah, it was at the very cursed location, the former uh, Cine family. Oh. Uh, yeah, which was then exposed as being something very dark. Yeah, I was which... gonna say, what were you doing there? <laughs> Why are you over there supporting those people? Eddie? I was guilty. Nah, I joking. didn't know. I was Me guilty too. by association, man. Same. <laughs> so about an hour in. Uh, you're then in the studio and you get the first of so many shots where it's just of the hands. It's supposed to be of the hands of uh, Michelle Piccoli, the, who plays the painter, but it's actually a stand-in, uh, a professional artist who's matching the real you know, strokes that a professional uh, painter would be doing in these sketches. And the sound design of just like the pen hitting paper and scratching it for every single line is so detailed and like i i was blasting that shit to be fair <laughs> mm-hmm. uh but i i love all of the like the minute small details within the sound design like in that middle two hours of mainly just being in the studio watching him sketch and eventually paint I uh, that I really love those two hours because going into it like with not very much information, I'm I was so fascinated by how much of it is just devoted to the process, and I feel like that's what merits the length about it because it's less fixated on the outcome of like making art and more the repercussions of like what you how you affect the relationships of those around you while you're creating something. Mm-hmm. And like the length in the studio, like allows for a lot of interesting things to happen. Like 
kind of how we see him start so many paintings and just scrap them too. You know, even a couple, I'm like, hey, that kind of looks good. That could that could be the one even. And it's just like, <laughs> nope, it's, it's, you know, not in his, you know, creative eye that this ma- uh, matches his standards. Yeah, no, I love later on in that, like after the uh, break and turn into part two, where he's on a couch flipping through a sketchbook and it's like 80 different pages of just sketches of her in different positions that are so detailed. Uh, and he's just you know, basically torturing her uh, by making her take all these poses. But then, of course, uh, the power dynamic does shift around that halfway point where she he becomes kind of disheveled and not confident in his work. And she is the one pushing him to the finish line, even though that will again be reversed when she sees the final product. Um, so within this long, like the main bulk of the film, uh, there's so much stylistically that Rivette is doing that keeps it from being like slow or dry or anything like that. Like there are so many long takes that are then just interrupted with some sort of jump cut or a cut to something where it's, you know, much louder on the audio track or something like that. And the repetitions, you know, build these kind of, I don't want to say games, but these patterns kind of within this film. And, you know, the middle two hours of this, there's, it's so much in there just on a formal level, breaking down what he's doing as a filmmaker before you get even into the like idea of what these two characters are doing to each other. Mm-hmm. And it all seems so effortless too, which is easily impressive. Like the, I feel like the length is never meant to be felt as something like imposing or anything like that. Yeah, It's, you know, it's all, it's all pretty breezy as breezy as a four hour movie can be. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> You know, just the subtle touches, like when he decides to move his camera, especially like in conversation, sometimes like a piece of dialogue will motiv- motivate a camera movement. And it just it'll be usually just like a nice push in or push out. But it just really will put an emphasis on whatever, you know, is going on in that scene. Yeah, There's a really great dolly out like uh, before we get into this, when the three guys are kind of deciding that Marianne should actually be the model. And it's kind of this epiphany uh, moment for him. Uh, And the camera just pulls back from this already kind of spacious shot with the three heads in it to their full bodies being in frame, you know, only taking up a quarter of the frame. And I don't know, the way that Rivette moves the camera is always very kind of sly and like, you know, it's it's very it doesn't call attention to itself that much. But if you're paying attention, you know, every single camera movement feels so impactful. Right. And I, I like I, I said earlier, I think the, some of the camera movements are just so elaborate because they're, you know, they're frequently compound movements. It tracks and then dollies in or out or then pans around. And I, what, I, what I find, you know, so interesting about the, the form in this, that the camera frequently keeps back. And it only ever really cuts in close when it's absolutely necessary. And I think to to put a finer point on it is that Drogue once said that that the most precise editor of all time was was Chaplin, and then after Chaplin, it was Rivet. And you know, I think in this film, you you sort of really get you know just the precision of the cutting and the precision of camera movements. Everything is motivated. Nothing is ever arbitrary. Yeah, and I think in that Jonathan Rosenbaum article or, or review of it that you sent us, like he he talks about that how the, the long takes aren't even really for realism the way that other long takes are. Uh, it's like it just adds to the dynamic for every you know cut being so important. 
and like the timing of the cut is more important than the length of the take. And I think that's something right. that's really important to what keeps this film moving forward. And, you know, there's these little digressions where they'll go outside. There's like a balcony outside of the uh, studio. And there's all these, you know, gorgeous shots of the characters, uh, the camera inside the studio looking out the door at the characters, you know, either entering yeah, or exiting. The, and the shaft of light coming in and, you oh, know, yeah. just like... There's almost like a sensory level to it that goes beyond to you can feel like the dampness and the dankness of the studio and you know the the brightness of the air outside. There's there's that one shot where it goes out of the studio and it goes like it tracks back along the balcony. Oh my um, god! Yeah, and you're just taking in like the texture of all the rooftops and everything. Like I all the attention right. to detail in the uh, the setting of this film is like so well felt. Uh, you know, it's not like he's loading you up with all of these shots of uh, just the setting with no people in the beginning. It's throughout the whole movie. You're just kind of getting used to being in this environment. And it feels so right. lived in and all the spaces that you could kind of create uh, beauty out of Rivette is exploring and not even exploring makes it feel like he knows exactly where they are already. Um, to speak right. to the sense of setting in how it relates to Crumb, because I feel like these are both like definitely A movies, but I think the settings provide a good contrast in what makes Crumb more of like more like a B movie or a B yeah. side thing is there in this there are so many large spaces and just like this fucking huge house and like watching both this morning i started with crumb first where you're just used to these tiny like cramped like little home spaces and then here you're in these elaborate ornate in this elaborate and ornate house where just the people are dwarfed by the sheer scale of it everything in, in crumb like every single space is just like in total squalor <laughs> like <Yeah>. everything <laughs> just looks like it looks like an apocalyptic landscape and you know that that's sort of i, I guess we'll get to it when we want to go over the film but it's sort of like gets to like the the broader theme that's communicated in a lot of his art and i think the space uh in the setting for this film is so wonderful like it creates uh because it combined with how you said earlier that the camera never gets that close to the characters unless it's you know definitely necessary uh the spacious two shots in this actually do you mentioned uh strobe earlier and like right, especially yeah. the the scene where nicholas and liz are on uh, that balcony outside and you see the mountains be behind them and it's so perfectly framed and there's so much space in that like medium two shot even in that narrow academy frame that it did call to mind both strobe and like classic hollywood framing right yeah and, and yeah i was gonna say and romer um, oh yeah romer as well but... for sure Romer also I saw at that cursed fucking movie theater where <laughs> they were do oh god I can't even can't get them out of my mind. <laughs> also the setting is very Romer to me too kind of the yeah reminds me of a nice vacation. Right yeah there. the the, the mise en scène in this is probably like I said this is probably the closest that Rivette has gotten to to a Romer film. Yeah. I love the detail of him uh, turning over all of his other paintings when he's in the studio. Like every time he sees <laughs> one that's face up, he has to turn it against yeah, the he wall. Yeah, has to turn it around. Yeah, uh, and like it's so funny because he's working through these, you know, you would suppose career long uh, things that bother or interest him as an artist, and yet he's purposely uh, tr trying to like neglect the rest of his work. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of the, I guess you could say, old masters are kind of always trying to do. You know, they they have these things that are innate within them as artists that they're always going to be there. 
and then there's also the things that they're trying to leave behind and move past. And they struggle with the notions of why they're attracted to these things. Too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, why uh, <laughs> certain people are attracted to women with large <laughs> bums? I mean, that, that seems a little more obvious. But, you know. makes, makes no sense to me. And. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, another thing I wanted to touch on was that so in uh, Rosenbaum's essay for uh, for the booklet that came with that, that one box that I, I think you can find it online it's called like Paris and its Double or something like that um, he, he describes every Rivette film as operating along two axes which are the the Rossellini the Renoir and the, the Hawks axis um, which is sort of like the opportunity to afford like play and improvisation and, and sort of let yourself go. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Eisenstein, Lang, and Hitchcock axis, which is the one to plot and dominate and control. And I think you, this one is much more heavily tilted in favor of like the Rossellini, the, the Hawks, and the Renoir axis. Like some of the shots of the, the castle, like the hallways in the castle, just immediately like brought to mind the rules of the game and the, the, camera just almost never stops moving but when it does you know when it does settle it's just so so still and so purposeful like i said that it is and especially like the the restriction to you know what one space especially the studio almost brought to mind like rio bravo oh wow yeah i actually could kind of see i mean it's more of like also the length of that because rio bravo is one of those films where it is fairly long it's like two hours 40 but the the feeling that you get is that you have been staying with those characters for like a whole night mm-hmm. uh and i think right. that this film definitely shares that as well and a lot of that is in the setting and how rivette's able to explore that space so naturally yeah and i don't, I don't know if this is just me being dumb or like uh rivette messing <laughs> with like space and time but it like once once it was said that it was only like three, that was a three day session. Yeah. Something like that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. what the fuck? I was like, yeah. that was, that was only three days. But I get, I guess when you're in these studio scenes, he really lets these scenes kind of play out as long as they would go in yeah. real life. And that's kind of the extent of the realism. And he really leans into the repetition of it as well. Uh, but there are a lot of cuts that really like ingrain how much the repetition is part of the process and how dedicated uh, he is to showcasing the process in like it's in its reality I mean uh, not to keep going back to the Rosenbaum thing but you sent it and I read it so it's in my head now but uh, right. he talked about it being about the verisimilitude of artistic process rather than realism as just like people interacting and I think that's kind of the key to the movie because like uh, there are you know it's not as like it's not surreal like Celine and Julie it doesn't have those uh, it doesn't have people that aren't really people, you know, these are grounded characters, but I think the dedication to realism is much more in the artistic process, which allows the characters to say these kind of grandiose arch things that like are more supposed to be representations of what they're feeling in the themes of the film. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting dynamic that he creates in the movie too. Right. And it, it, it's like reality in pursuit of fantasy, which is sort of like the, the cornerstone theme of, you know, a lot of, of Rivette. Yeah. And I, I think it, it sort of, I, I guess, to, to jump forward a bit to, to Chrome, it sort of formed like an interesting dichotomy because this is sort of like a film that is, is a fiction film, but it almost feels like a documentary, but it, it's, a doc, it, it, it's a fiction film that presents itself in terms of, of verisimilitude, and whereas you have, 
you have Crumb, which is almost feels like a, a documentary as fiction. Um, you know, creating characters out of these real people. If that makes sense. <laughs> no, it definitely does. Uh, and I think we're going to get more into that when we talk about Crumb because there's definitely, and again, what Rosenbaum wrote about it is how he like hesitated to refer to these people as fictional characters, but that is the way the film presents them. And that's also right. a really weird push-pull thing that you have to deal with because they're also like real tragic people, you know. But as La Belle Noiseuse, uh winds down, uh, he finishes it. And uh, let's just say nobody's happy with the end result uh, of the two people that saw it. Uh, (laughs) And he ends up uh, sealing it into his wall, like uh, laying bricks on top of it. So nobody will ever see it, (laughs) which I think is pretty awesome uh, for in terms of like, if you've ever ever had like a post, you wanted to totally so hard. (laughs) You wanted to seal it in the walls. Some things are too ahead of their time. Like some of my posts, I have to put them in the archive. I have to, I'll 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 revisit them at a later date. It's just, it's too much right now. Going, going straight to the draft. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm's delete function. Uh, it works as like a bricklayer that w- walks around <laughs> with him on Twitter. Uh, so then he starts from scratch and, uh, you know, finishes the painting overnight or however long it takes. And we don't really see it happen and uh, shows it to everybody. And, you know, the reactions are somewhat muted because i feel like everyone's just been through so much over yeah. those three days that feel so much longer literally muted i, I feel like it's almost pure silence that it's yeah. recepted with <laughs> i also like that you don't see the actual the real painting yeah, yeah you just get that little glimpse yeah. of it where you know it's that the there's red. some red yeah. yeah yeah and then that's how you know that he didn't uh get rid of all those bricks and uh bury uh, unbury it when you see what he presents them is a mainly blue painting mm-hmm. uh and it's of the pose it looks a lot like the pose uh when they're like goofing around and he like can't stay on the stool and he's like trying yeah. to put her right back where she was and she's like on her uh hands and knees looking down kind of mm-hmm. uh that becomes the pose uh that is you know the real painting or is it the real painting you know obviously but uh i think that is actually kind of a really nice light note because it's (laughs) the one really nice and light scene in the whole process is when they're basically just like punch drunk and laughing for five minutes straight so so i i think that that scene just feels like improvisation deliberately left in in a film that definitely feels like more controlled than a lot of his other films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you get that immediate tonal shift afterwards where, you know, he wants to get back to work and then you get five minutes of him just dragging around like art supplies. Yeah. And stuff like that, which <laughs> right. I really enjoyed. Oh, I love that. Yeah. When it chooses to be like more deliberately slow than the rest of the points in the film, those mm-hmm. real slow moments are possibly the best ones, you know? Yeah. Uh, right. Like when he's first painting and you're just seeing him, you know, swash around the brush in the water and the different colors mm-hmm. as the paint he just applied on the canvas is drying. Uh, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, right. ASMR potential had to easy joke to be made about this film, but you know. Had to oh be yeah, I'm definitely gonna clip out <laughs> some paint sounds to put in here. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're gonna wrap that one up. Um, is there any? Uh, oh well, one thing I wanted to say about that ending as well is that he refers to it as his first posthumous work when he unveils <laughs> the painting, uh, which is uh, you know. 
as much as I just said it was an optimistic thing looking back on like the one bright moment that they had together, it is also extremely depressing. <laughs> oh, in the Rosenbaum review uh, where he talks about it like being sort of art versus life and it sort of ending more on the life aspect, it sort of uh, spares the harsher reaction that yeah. could have uh, come out of the potential like masterpiece he had originally painted and mm-hmm. sealed away. That's true. Right. Yeah. So, so um, there, there's this long ass essay uh, by this critic, D. Kite, uh, about Ravet that I, I, I sent it to Malcolm, but um, I, I do recommend reading it because it was sort of like the key for me to unlocking sort of all of Ravet. And the final, the final paragraphs about it are about La Belle Noises, which is sort of like why the film has fascinated me for so long was in part due to this essay and and in part due to like the metal level of commentary that the film has with regards to Rebet's career mm-hmm. and the the sealing up of the painting I brought this up earlier um, is is sort of like a reflection of the scene that he excised from uh, Out One, which is a scene of Jean Pierre Leo just going to like complete pieces, um, like to basically you know in Out One he realizes as a conspiracy that he's been pursuing for, you know, the 13 hours of the film isn't real and basically just destroys the entire environment around him. And <laughs> Rebet, you know, thought that he went too far with that, so he cut it out of the, the film. It's, you know, totally non-existent, not included on any of the releases of the film, as far as I know. Um, and that sort of has the, rea- the, the reaction that Marianne has to seeing the painting is sort of similar to, like, what... Uh, what he's cut out so you know he feels obligated to to seal it away just because he's gone too far he's exposed too much of of the muse and of himself through the art i'll give it four and a half bullets i didn't even really know too much this is my first revet so i don't even know the backstory really but i just enjoyed it you know for what it was and i also want to note that i uh I, i downloaded this movie but i also found it on this um kind of like porn slee site that i use to find like <laughs> like uh giallo movies called erotty.ga kind of like erotica but like you, the it's g instead of a c mm-hmm. and uh this movie was on there which i thought was really funny well, and it's and naked it's, for yeah, two hours yeah exactly before, yeah. and um but like the whole cut too because i I've, i heard that in the rosenbaum essay that there's a two-hour cut yeah which is funny um so go watch it on there if you don't have any other means I will say also Rosenbaum speculated that the reason it's the biggest hit of Rivette's career is that an attractive woman is naked for two hours of the runtime. Uh, he brings that up up top in the essay before going in depth on the film. And you know what? It could be true. That's that's word of mouth yeah. advertising. Uh, <laughs> Hard hey, to I, argue. Yeah, dude, there's this fucking French movie playing down the street. <laughs> yeah. <Naked> two hours. <laughs> All the poses. <laughs> What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm also going to give this uh, four and a half bullets. Um, this is my third Rivette. Um, I had seen Celine and Julie and Duel, um, and I was really taken aback uh, by this being like so different and rigid, uh, but like still, I mean, like what Emmett was saying about that like playful scene that emerges there and still like very heavily elements of his style at play. Um, had a great time. And I love watching a naked woman for two hours. Uh, I I think we're going to have a little sixth sense here because wow. I, I wanted to go whole hog and five this. But I think that <laughs> the after, like, maybe it'll stick with me and I'll think about it more. But the last maybe 20 minutes or so, uh, 
I think I think I was just too into the middle two hours. Yeah. So like it almost felt anticlimactic after he revealed uh, his posthumous work. And like I, I liked the note that it ended on. I thought it was really fantastic, but I thought it was like not undermining itself, but I feel like maybe the last half hour just isn't up to the absolute God level, you know, two and a half hours that preceded it. Uh, but four and a half. Hey, that's a good fucking score. <laughs> what about you, Emmett? So I, I'll give it five. Um, just because this has been a perennial favorite. Um, and this is actually the first time I've revisited it in four years, like I mentioned. Um, and, it, I just can't say enough about this movie. I could just keep talking for another 30 minutes about this, honestly. Um, this, this movie is just so deeply moving to me and also remarkably cruel, but also uplifting and, and layered. And I, I, I can't give enough praise to it. This is, this has been my favorite Rivet since I've watched it. Um, I don't see that changing. Um, but I also haven't seen all of his films. Um, I've seen about nine now, so um, I'm going to give this five. I, I don't really rate movies. If you if you go to my letterbox, I just like things. Um, but for the sake of the podcast, I'll give it five. Thank you, thank you for breaking your code. Yeah. <laughs> also, some of the reviews imply a rating. You know, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, there's right. a little heart. There is the heart yeah. is the biggest rating of all. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we will be right back to talk about Crumb. But I don't think that many artists give you such a wide range of masturbatory possibility as crumb, you know. That is, if you like what he likes. And we're back on Extended Clip. Um, before we get into crumb, is there any other recent viewings you wanted to catch us up on? Yeah, you know what? I, I hit the red carpet this weekend. You guys hear this? <laughs> you guys hear about this? Um, I didn't hit the... Well, I no, I no, I didn't hit the red carpet at all. <laughs> I was like, well, I kind of did. I actually didn't. But... uh. I saw that there was a free screening of a new Amazon Prime TV show called <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hunters. And, uh, you guys, oh, is that the Nazi one? That's the Nazi one. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's dog shit. I, uh, <laughs> I fell asleep for about a half hour of its 90-minute pilot um, <laughs> sitting, like, front row. Pretty bad decision. You know, let's just say the wind blew me there. You know, um, <laughs> but um, is Al Pacino Jewish? No, he's no, Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's going full, you know, Jew in this in this uh show. And well, I, I mean Brian De Palma made him play some pretty non Italian guys in his career. Well that's what I was about to say is that he's I feel like he's played every single race besides like a black person at this point. <laughs> like it's he's he's been collecting them all. And I think he needs to finish it off. That's just my opinion. Maybe he should have got, you know, that taken care of a little bit earlier when he's a little bit more acceptable. But um, yeah, Hunters is dog shit. It's probably, I mean, it's probably not good. Like, it's like in terms of like its depiction of Holocaust atrocities, it makes up like fake Holocaust events where like people are getting killed, like playing human chess yeah. and shit like that. I saw a screenshot on Twitter from it where it was like the Mindhunter font, you know, for the locations. Yeah. Uh, and it was that that said Auschwitz, like across the street, <laughs> really big. I was like, oh my God, this seems like the most tasteless shit ever. It's pretty tasteless. Um, yeah. Also, I watched Bitter Victory by Nicholas Ray. Oh, okay. Ooh, that looks really good. Mother end of the spectrum. Really great. Really great movie. Total masterpiece. And um, I, I feel like I, I feel like I was a little sleepy when I watched it, and I really want to rewatch it again. But it's like there's just certain scenes in here that are so classic Ray, but it's just you know pulled to the, the. Uh, what is it called? <laughs> the arena of a war. Yeah. You know? And 
it's I, it's a little bit like incoherent, I guess, but it's, it, I feel like it benefits from it in a way. And there's just, you know, certain scenes where, you know, characters are, you know, flat out almost didactically just questioning the nature of what they're doing and kind of are propelling towards, you know, not their doom, but just bad decisions. So I See, was going to say, yeah, just honestly, just pick it up format ever black and white cinema scope. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's a rare one that like when done right is killer. Like 40 guns is in that and mm-hmm. it's fucking yeah. sick. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely yeah. Ben- benefits from, you know, these it's in Benghazi, these Benghazi war scenes of like these Sandy Hills yeah, and stuff like that. And, the great scene towards the end where hey man, Benghazi ain't going away. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, little did they know the, the atrocities that would take place here <laughs> years and years later. A mere 13 hours later. <laughs> but where uh, Richard Burton is roasting the shit out of uh, Kurt Jurgens, his superior, mm-hmm. you know, basically calling him an empty man, a coward and stuff like that. Bitter Victory, great movie. Read Godard's review on it. That's also a yeah, great well, review. One of his best reviews. I was going to say, I swear that the, um, the minute of silence in uh, Band of Outsiders is ripped from this. There's like that scene in the bar where they all just sit in silence for like 30 seconds. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, and very similar to yeah. the end of uh, La Belle Nosus or whatever, however you say it. <laughs> the, well, the Belle Nice Ass. Where Kurt Jurgens is honored a Medal of Honor. And pretty much everyone knows it's bullshit and just meets it with pure silence, his award. Damn. So no, another sad time at the movies. On the Godard, I feel like uh, as a critic, he's often uh, incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, but like on Nick Ray, always killer. Yeah. And I think it's it's kind of both when it comes to like, oh, yeah. Victor. It's like when his incomprehension reaches like transcends and just makes yeah. a lot of sense in a way. Yeah, one of the only ones who gets away with that. So shut up, you letterboxed nerds. <laughs> uh, what about you, JT? Um, well, I didn't watch it this week, but I watched it in preparation uh, for my decade catch-up, and it did make my list. Uh, no Home Movie 2015 by Chantal Ackerman. Uh, it is very very miserable i kind of felt like i was cheating with this one because i've only seen like a handful of ackerman mostly like shorts um but i wanted like i felt like this would really connect with me so i wanted to like sneak that in there um at the end and yeah it really did it's like a beautiful digital work about like her disconnect and relationship with her mother and like unexpectedly like watching her mother die. That's like, if you have some serious mommy issues, check this out or maybe don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Cause it's like, it captures, I mean, one thing in relating to it personally that like is really um, beautiful and like surprising is cause it's like not all like, um, like not all combative conversations with her mom. There are like some moments where they are like having like a playful uh, back and forth and are relating to one another. But then like other scenes, you can really feel the distance, especially brought on by like technology. Like when uh, she's like Skyping her mom and like recording 
uh, her through uh, like you see the reflection of the camera in like the FaceTime uh, laptop reflection and like the mom doesn't quite know how to work the new technology and it's just it is perfectly encapsulates the feeling of like watching your parents get older and sort of inevitably die which is very very miserable um, but there are some like there there are some moments that like were light and uh, appealed to me. Like I saw uh, she smoked uh, American Spirit yellows. I nice. believe I always like to keep track of what the director's brands are. I think David Lynch is American Spirit blues um, for those keeping home uh, keeping score at home as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really amazing. Definitely worth watching. But I don't think I'm going to watch it again anytime soon. Those are the best kind of movies where you love it, but the second it ends, you say, I'm never going to watch this again. Because <laughs> it gives you time to do things other than watching movies. The best gift a movie could go. Is not being a movie. And that's what my pick is for this week. Uh, I only watched a couple of movies since our last episode. I've been real busy with a new uh, job and whatnot. And like, I I have been re-watching Arrested Development. Now, this is a TV show that uh, is it's a television show. It's Whoa. not a movie. <laughs> Whoa. It's the first time I thought I've it was ever a rap done. group. <laughs> <laughs> first time I've ever done that on this show. Um, really? Yeah, I've never talked about TV. Damn. I, I'm, I stand for the integrity of celluloid. Uh, <laughs> um, That's real. But yeah, I thought I watched this whole show in high school, and I guess I only watched the first like five episodes because I don't remember any of this shit. Uh, but it's a it's a very fun show that I feel like is just like the not the last of an era, but it does very uh, it does a very good job at encapsulating an era of comedy uh, in TV that was like pretty good on a weirdly mainstream level like broad comedy that was on fox in primetime that was actually good uh but there is bad stuff of course because uh anthony and joe russo uh, directed quite a few of these episodes uh so did oh no uh, you know who also <laughs> did is a uh, super bad director greg matola and oh. i will say that he was just copying the russo style so he's not like guilty but yeah. this is a pretty poorly directed show i gotta say and it's not just because they make shitty superhero movies um there's a lot of zooms in this that are usually supposed to be for reveals and for like visual gags. And sometimes it's funny, but there's this fucking zoom that they do from the very beginning. That's like really incremental. Like it zooms, I don't know, five or 10 millimeters of focal length at a time. Kind of like it's, you know, a little bit at a time, both in and wow. out. And it that really was the best audio like description yeah. of what a zoom feels like <laughs> I've ever heard. Uh, but it's really ugly. And like, it's really weird how it's also as much as it's like a last gasp of air for like good mainstream sitcoms. It's also the start of hell of like shows being directed like absolute shit because they're supposed to be mockumentary ish. Uh, and like where staging is just completely fucking thrown out the window. And there's so many ineffective camera movements and cuts that you're just like, I could have done that better. I could like I could right. have written these jokes, but I could have made this a much better product. Uh, so yeah. Arrested Development, do better. Uh, <laughs> Higher podcast hosts. <laughs> uh, what about you, Emmett? So uh, I I put Twenty Season One on in the background uh, on all day Sunday. Um, 
season one of Twin Peaks is a movie, but season two is not, and season three is, just <laughs> to clarify. That, that is my line in the sand on that. Um, I also watched Lucio Fulci's The House by the Cemetery, which is fine. I I mean, I, I so I've been watching a lot of stuff on Tubi, which is a, uh, a free streaming platform. It just shows you one ad before every movie, and they have, like, a ton of, uh, like, B and horror movies on there. So I've mostly been watching stuff on that this past month. Um, Damn, Clifford is on Tubi. So shouts out to what? Clifford, the Martin Short vehicle, which oh, is on yeah. Tubi. Yeah. I re- I rewatched Mikey and Nikki on Tubi like a couple nights ago. Damn. Shout out Tubi. Do they have the Criterion <laughs> rip or does it look like the old shitty version? It's probably the old shitty version, I think. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go on, sorry. Um and uh earlier last week, uh I watched Brian Yosna's Society, which is completely fucking insane. Um definitely like top tier Epstein brain cinema. Uh highly recommend if you are interested in that at all. Um <laughs> It is basically about uh, a bunch of ruling class elites in Beverly Hills who participate in, like, a uh, giant incest orgy, and this kid um, stumbles onto the the cults um, that his parents and his sister and everyone around him is involved in. Um, It's a bit like they live, but with almost, like, Cronenbergian levels of body horror. I know Malcolm has seen it, um, so if he wants to chime in, he's yeah. free too. I, it's, it's been a while, but yeah, I think in my little letterbox capsule, there's like uh, there's uh, anal fisting on screen that our protagonist has to do. It's uh, yeah, the the final orgy scene from that movie really stands out to me in my memory. It's yeah, it's some of the best practical effects I've seen. Damn. Well. I think we should keep it moving along because we are running a bit long going into right. our second feature. Uh, Crumb is a documentary, the debut film of one Terry Zweigoff, and it was produced also by David Lynch. The first thing you see on the screen after you hit play is... Directed by David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch presents as director. <laughs> David Lynch presents, and... So, Emmett, uh, do you have kind of a long-standing uh, relationship with the work of R. Crumb or this film? Not really. I discovered this film last year. I've been meaning to watch it for a long time, just because I know that, that Rosenbaum is a big fan of it. He wrote the essay, essay for the, the Criterion. Um, and I, I actually encountered it, for the, like I said, for the first time last year, and it resonated with me in the same way that La Belle did, just in terms of being about like art and and sort of how people make art, what's required of artists, are artists socially responsible? Um, and I, you know, it, it's just totally repulsive. These people are terrible human beings, but also, like, I don't really care to consume art made by good people, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> is, 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 like, who, who gives a shit? The worse, the better, I say. <laughs> so next week on the podcast, Interiors and uh, Another Woman, a classic Woody Allen double feature. <laughs> Final, yeah, finally doing the Woody double feature. <laughs> the fans have been waiting. We've been teasing it out for 38 episodes. <laughs> but now that we've completely dismissed art by good people, I think it's time to get right. going. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that this selection that I made for this episode was going to be the one that finally gets you guys sampled. Yeah. <laughs> the film Twitter plebs are not ready for the appreciation of pogs in art. <laughs> Is it really so perverted just to appreciate the human form in all its glory? I think not. 
<laughs> do you guys remember? Okay, so uh, do you, are you aware of the blogger and critic Piero Scaruffi? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah do you yeah. remember his very weird uh, essay about the age of consent? No. Oh, well, that no. proved that he was also a very terrible person who created worthwhile art. Uh, <laughs> that's new, all I'm going to say. The about New Order that. song? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really glad that you brought this to the table, Emmett, because I do have a, a pretty strong relationship with this film and like Crumb's art in general. Like, uh, I think Nico and I discovered this, like, I don't know, maybe like three or four years back. Um, and it sort of started uh, us getting into the world of underground comics because like comics, I don't know, by and large, like this fucking superhero bullshit, who <laughs> fucking cares? <laughs> but you're going to exactly. have like some misogyny and racism, uh, <laughs> pogs. Uh, it's like, sign me up. Um, but just, I don't know. It's crumbs. Art is so fascinating and like really like that's, and like I don't know it stems out from like him as like a character himself just being so like nakedly honest with all of his disgusting desires and just laying it out on the table and like definitely there's like a satirical element to some of the things he's doing but just I don't know it's there are like I know one image I fixated on this time around is like uh, in his like weird world of gigantic women, there's one uh, image that's shown on screen where it's like a bunch of tiny little men crawling up yeah. a woman in her <laughs> pussy and just out her mouth. Yeah, and it's just like I like I can't help like I want to read every comic that this man has made. It's like that's yeah that's wild. No, his fascination with size. He's a bit of a size king, if you will. Uh, <laughs> He, he called to mind in Seinfeld where George gets fixated on having sex with a really tall woman. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that. I do, but, yeah. uh, I also remembered a kid on the schoolyard when I was like uh, in fourth grade. Uh, there was a girl that was in fifth grade that like everyone thought was hot because she started puberty and we hadn't yet. Yeah. And uh, my friend said to me that he wishes she was 20 feet tall so he could climb her. <laughs> From a young age. <laughs> yeah, as like an eight-year-old, he said that to me. And I was like, that is a weird fantasy, man. I was just say, it's, I reckon that maybe Robert Crumb, if not started, popularized some, maybe some internet fetishes that are popular today, especially yeah. the giganticism, yeah. vor fetish, possibly. I, I wonder if, is, is Robert Crumb still alive? And if he is, I'd wonder yeah. what, okay. I wonder if he's peeked his head into like the world of deviant art and just weird shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he definitely has an influence on that. And even on like the silly doodles that I've seen our own JT make of, let's say, a minion, uh, a certain kid critic. Uh, <laughs> not He's not a kid critic anymore. It's Lights, Camera, Jackson. In my doodle, he's fully a grown man. <laughs> We have to tweet. You have yeah, to tweet you're that. Yeah, on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tweet. I'll send it to you. That can be the album or the episode art or whatever. Oh, <laughs> I'll have to Did consider guys... that one. <laughs> Did you guys see the tweet of of like Cameron Jackson celebrating his half birthday? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was. That was really good. He's he's been on several for like the last couple of years, and <laughs> I'm very down with it. Also, not to just get into this, but like his new podcast seems pretty cool, mainly because the co-host is like 
just the opposite of Lights, Camera, Jackson, <laughs> for whatever you take that as. <laughs> Do not look it up. Yeah, uh, but anyway, getting back to Crumb. So it's a documentary in the, I guess you could say, generic, and when I say that, I mean in the genre sense, uh, the generic profile documentary. But I think that it's the openness uh, with which uh, Zwigoff is approaching the Crumb family and like that crumb and company are reciprocating that you get a real insight into like what founded his artistic style as a child and you know his brother would force him to draw all these comics and wanted to be like a a businessman of drawings and was like having and it's also obviously very curious that the two sisters declined to be interviewed for the film about a right. guy who draws misogyny from when he was eight years old till when now when he's an old man. What if he had like two large sisters that beat him up constantly? <laughs> that, that was like the reveal. That would always give him piggyback rides. <laughs> um, what struck me about this for my first time watching it is how much Charles Crumb is like in, like involved. And of course, his other brother gets Maxin, a lot. Maxon, yeah. Maxon gets a lot of airtimes too airtime too but um the involvement of charles crumb and like this documentary and just his his you know uh, robert crumb's career it's just you know it's not where i expected the documentary to go and one of the most compelling scenes of the movie is when robert is flipping through his brother's old work and you know it shows that he like he has a considerable amount of talent too yeah but also that and i think we can go out of order here since it's not like uh you know there's some stuff right. that's revealed toward the end that's heavier than the stuff up top but yeah uh right when you are flipping through uh his brother george's drawings and then it slowly fades into being more uh, text-based and it will be a small yeah. like a half of someone's face and the whole panel of the comic is text and then it ended up just being him writing essays pretty much like in the beginning of this I like it too because it looks like at the end of each of these comics there's like two pages of prose like where the characters ended up after <laughs> yeah. that I guess uh, but it slowly devolves into just lines and scribbles and nonsense from words and I think that that deterioration is, it's really depressing, obviously, and it leads to, like, putting together the pieces of his mental health and where he's at now, uh, or where, you know, he, it's revealed that he uh, killed himself, like, after within a year after the filming, but where his mind went in, a, in uh, comparison to R. Crumb, who was able to spin that into a career, and not just a career, but something where he's inspiring artists all over the world, you know, and he's like renowned, where has his brother kind of just faded into writing nonsense and rereading the same books for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Rosenbaum sort of goes into that in, in his essay about it, where he, he talks about the, the words just devolving into, like, scrap marks and he calls it like one, one of the most horrifying images he's seen all year when he wrote the essay so presumably like 1994 1995 yeah. and he, he describes it as just like this hum underpinning the the entire film and you you can definitely feel like the, the you know obviously like the initial producer credit of david lynch sort of you know you get the, the feeling of like just this dark vibe permeating everything about these people and just total, like you see him living in total squalor with his mother, who he's been living with for thirty years. You know, he only held a job for one year. 
um, and he did it because his father told him to. Yeah, that's one thing with the darkness of the setting. I know we like kind of touched a little bit on there earlier, but Zweigoff, while he was filming it, I think was like completely fucking dead broke. He like Crumb himself was like resistant to making the film, but like he fucking begged him to like let him do it to like get some cash, and was like I don't know, barely um, making by. And like in Crumb's art as well, you get a sense of like just the feeling of knowing like being entrenched in poverty one like specific frame that I wrote down that was like really perfect for me and just encapsulating that and just the dirty like sort of terror of it all is when it's it's Charles uh, Crumb and Crumb's mom and they're like sitting on a couch and uh, Charles and the mother you can see like how sweaty and greasy their hair are, is yeah but um, behind them is like an is a mostly empty bookshelf that has just a teddy bear a picture of a cat and like a tub of Vaseline <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. and it's just Oh, it and she's wearing like dirty sweatpants. Yeah, it isn't until yeah. he says that he bathes once every six weeks that you realize <laughs> how greasy his hair is. Uh, but you know, it's like a really depressing life that he leads, and like, I don't know. Uh, it's also, you know, the film doesn't shy away from the darkness. So much of it is about the criticisms of Crumb. You know, you have mm-hmm. the former editor of Mother Jones, among others speaking out against his misogyny and like the or at least you could say the er, no it is his misogyny (laughs) and uh the racist portrayals that you may find within his work whether or not he's racist or making commentary uh but i think that his connection with old blues records is something (laughs) that really hits home especially in comparison to or not even in comparison really in companion with another uh documentary about an artist the devil and daniel johnston um, I think that Johnston's connection with traditional blues music and his very outsider artistic expression is linked to crumbs here uh, in the sense of just them having shared influence and also being very left field outside artists who were able to influence people who uh let's just say made a lot more fucking money than they did in their lives mm-hmm. uh, and it's just like the overwhelming sadness of the source material of it all uh the blues music uh from you know generations before crumb was making art is a really good kind of signifier of where all of their creation is coming from deep down Mm -hmm. and like for as sad as this movie gets like Robert Crumb's living a great lifestyle. For oh himself. yeah, he's a, he loves it. He gets he, to cheat on his wife. Yeah, he's he's a he, he was like a, a bitter incel who hit it big. Who yeah. you know found an audience for his pervert drawings. You know, it's kind of a very unique yeah. success. And uh, it's like the Come Town story. Yeah. Like they, they found whatever twenty thousand people to hear them say the R slur. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's just it's it's so interesting how. Uh, how confrontational he uh, he still kind of has this nerd bitterness that you know resides within him you know and the way he he'll talk to people and stuff like that like uh there's an interesting scene where it seems like they're at some sort of like party or there's some sort of interview and um there's a woman who knows something about sex or whatever who's like talking about like why uh men like to have sex i kind of forgot and then like crumbs well you know i think women are attracted to power too or something like that and it's just it's so it's so within him and it's just kind of he's very confrontational about that and he's not he doesn't make 
means to apologize. He's like, is some of my stuff misogynist, racist? He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. I have, <laughs> I have to deal with that or something. <laughs> I think Zwagov portrays what probably is at least his underpinning of racism when he's just walking down the street yeah. and he gets offended by the boombox music and he's like, oh, this aggressive music that people are listening to. Yeah, that was a very telling moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like as uh, said on Letterboxd by, uh, you know, Twitter friend and other uh, film podcaster Will Sloan, he said about this film, in these times of virtue signaling and performative wokeness, it's fun to spend two hours with someone whose art is entirely about what a huge piece of shit he is. <laughs> and honestly, I think that's great. It's just like wallowing in everything, like both the source of trauma that led him to have such a fried, fucked up brain and the fried, fucked up thoughts that are a product of it are kind of treated equally in this film. Uh, and it's very kind of, it's weird because it, I, I don't think it's like cold and detached either. It still feels like you're really with uh, both Crumb and Zweigoff kind of. Uh, it's a very weird film in that sense. Yeah, and also kind of, uh, the way it ends too, kind of like Crumb leaving America is yeah. a very kind of like <laughs> strange note to, to end off. But him kind of like, kind of leaving the discourse of all this stuff kind of behind in a sense and just yeah. going to France to fuck off and like... Be you, problematic. Be problematic. And, you know, he's he's a very vocal. Uh, he's very vocal, vocal about how he doesn't like kind of the American lifestyle and you could see it in some of his comics. So yeah, to capitalize that off of just leaving, you know, it makes sense. But I feel like it's also the kind of thing that's very easy to critique. Where oh, it's totally. It's not like a critique of, you know, uh, what the country was founded on or a critique of, you know, capitalism where he does a critique of, you know, quote unquote consumerism, which is often the kind of easy way to go. True. Uh, and I think like also that's fine. Like this movie's yeah. not about wanting you to agree with crumb. Uh, it's just showing him for the perverted fucked up, truly damaged person that he is not to get all Joker, but yeah. they are very damaged. <laughs> True. And he like, he never really wants to examine why he distaste has a distaste for these things. Yeah. He just expresses it artistically. And that's kind of like the thesis of what he does in a way. Yeah. And it's his brother, Maxon, who truly gets on his Joker shit, uh, sitting cross-legged right. on a bed of nails for a few hours a day, which is, yeah, fucked up. Sort of paints a portrait of, I mean, obviously he's just like a total misanthrope. He, you know, just hates everything and everyone. Um, but sort of paints a portrait of him as being, you know, a nostalgic and a reactionary in, in the sense of, like, he wishes that America could go back to, like, the 20s, 30s, you know, era, you know, when music was good and, you know, whatever he says about that shit. And you, you sort of see that reflected in his art where there, there's that montage where they show drawings, the evolution of, like, the scenes of American life as it progresses through time, where it just gets, like, the visual, the visual atmosphere just gets busier and busier, you know, it just, everything just gets taken over by, you know, the signs of industrial capitalism, electricity, um, first, and then, you know, storm fronts, and then, you know, power lines everywhere, um, uh, cars on, on what used to be, like, a, a dirt road. And I think that little portion is really what brings his artistic output uh, closer to producer David Lynch's, because they both have this, uh, you know, kind of reactionary, or you could pin it as reactionary nostalgia 
uh, in critique, but it's like also both their views of these old time old timey things that they're trying to recreate are extremely dark and like right, not rosy. They're very cynical. Yeah, it's right. like, you know, Lynch was even some people will criticize like the beginning of Blue Velvet, how obvious that is, where it's like the rosy eye nostalgia and then you go beneath the surface, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh I think Crumb is the same way, where it's the nostalgia for old timey mechanisms and, you know, the the fifties nuclear family thing, but it's obviously all a critique of that. Mm-hmm. Uh even right, if the critique is very uh harsh <laughs> like in the uh the joe blow comic that gets uh, <laughs> torn apart by uh, <laughs> a rightfully torn apart i yeah. guess you could say uh it's a very interesting comic oh yeah i've read that one before and it's it's pretty funny it's like uh it's i don't know you can't like i i just in trying to explore his work more it's just like a morbid fascination by yeah. like you never like there is I mean, I feel like like few other artists work, there is nothing off the table for Crumb. And that's why in some of his later stuff, it's like surprising that he is a little bit more restrained. I know he did um, like a book that's like drawings about like Kafka's life. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like uh, he's so interested in these people as characters, whether it's the people around him or the characters he's creating. And it's like... It could be to a fault where he's, you know, the people in his life, he sees them too much two dimensionally. Mm -hmm. And then the drawings he sees, maybe, you know, he reads into too much. Um, But I think it's like really interesting in that sense. And you meet a lot of, you know, characters either on the page or just like walking around in San Francisco. It really proves how good of an environment that was for him in terms of creativity. No matter, no matter how much he kind of hated looking around at the sidewalk, there was a lot of people watching that resulted in him doodling. Like when he goes to that cafe where he likes to draw and there's that guy behind him with the rat who he's like feeding fucking milk to the rat or whatever and like smoking a cigarette uh, and just these little detours through San Francisco and uh, also the pages of Crumb just meeting all these people that are in the kind of outskirts of what you would imagine uh, normal humanity to be like. Oh yeah, there's a great moment in uh, one of the scenes where he's walking where like you just see him like just fucking like rubberneck so hard yeah. and just stare at a woman's ass like turn around <laughs> and do a look. <laughs> yeah, it's just missing the damn. Yeah. <laughs> he also describes one of his characters early on shelf as having a phenomenal real rear shelf uh, which I think right away lets you know how uh, objectifying of women he is. Uh, and it's, you know, something that he acknowledges. Also, he was very horny for Bugs Bunny as a little kid, which I think is something that a lot of people probably were. You know, Bugs Bunny was dressing as a girl. He was doing all sorts he of trickster me. stuff. <laughs> yeah, none of us on this podcast can relate to that at all. Um, yeah, I think it's so funny because, like, that Bugs Bunny thing is, like, of course he's obsessed with women, but he's also just, like, obsessed with the act of objectification itself, too. Yeah. Like, that, to, that shows itself in a very interesting way. In his comics, also uh, the, there's like a lot of slight, not digression, not digressions, but a lot of like fun facts that this movie will pull up that mm-hmm. just make it a, a fun watch, even when it is, does get a little depressing. Like um, the fact that he gets a good review on, on his on his hog that he has a big dick. That's oh kind of, yeah, that's kind of like a it's kind of a <laughs> twist almost because he doesn't. You know, it, it really. I mean, not to not to disparage Robert Crumb, but it didn't seem 
those are not the actions of someone who has a huge penis usually. <laughs> but it could be. It it's could true. be like a F for fake scenario, and she's playing That's into the I, character of Crumb and uh, believing that he has a world record setting <laughs> penis. That's that was I was also thinking too. It's like it also would just be funny to say that he has a huge dick too, yeah. like as <laughs> as a, a woman. You know, Robert doesn't exaggerate anything in his comics. The women are exactly the way he wants them, and he really accurately portrays himself as the skinny bad posture myopic man he is some people wonder if he doesn't exaggerate the size of his penis which always appears awfully big in the comics robert does not exaggerate anything he is endowed with one of the biggest penises in the world yeah uh that was right after his ex said that there wasn't a lot of traditional sex but a lot of piggyback rides <laughs> which yeah sitting on feet or something, yeah. like, something like that <laughs> He also, even in his healthiest sex, uh, like healthiest relationships in terms of sex, was also uh, masturbating four to five times a day. So you got to imagine how much he was going at it as a kid. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. In the same bed with his brothers? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, until they were 15 years old. (laughs) When when he talks about his dad breaking his collarbone when he was five. Oh, my God. And then, like, there's just like this. There, there are, like, scenes where Wygoff just interrupts because, every, like, what's being said is just so incredulous. Like, he, he says, like, he describes the story about his father breaking his collarbone when he was five, and then you hear Wygoff off camera just say, you were five? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another one is when he's visiting Max, uh, Maxon at the end, and, like, Maxon's just telling stories about molesting women. And he's like, uh, you know, that's what happens, and then you become a woman molester. Oh, yeah. And, like, Swigoff said- asks, like, did you rape these women? Like, he has to ask, obviously. You know, it's like, uh, it's pretty disgusting. Oh, yeah. He like Maxon says, I wrote down this quote because it's so crazy. He said a couple years of molesting, you'll get to rape. Yeah, but, that was crazy. That was like Jesus Christ. This yeah, guy's yeah. too twisted for me. Because like Maxon describes that incident where he's like just going around Philly and just pulls some a woman's pants down. He makes in, like, sure to store. let us know it was a very Jewish woman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the plump ass. <laughs> Uh, speaking of characters that you meet on a lighter note, <laughs> one of the characters you uh, that he drew in his kind of 50s nostalgia uh, was Scutch, who uh, who kind of seems like the heavy in a Joe Biden stump speech story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he never he just never loved a hoe. Like like he said, he never <laughs> uh, he's never been in love with any of the woman what he's with, which th- masturbating four to five times a day. That has to like just drain the love out of you. <laughs> I didn't realize that's how it was compartmentalized, but now that you say it, yeah, I should probably <laughs> look at my habits a little more closely. Yeah. They'll probably just kill your soul after a little while. Yeah. No, I would assume it would, yeah. One scene that really captured my attention this time around is where he's describing watching Goodfellas with his, like, eight-year-old daughter. Yeah. And yeah, he said he had to turn it off because she was getting physically ill from being scared. And it's like, you didn't think... He's like, and Goodfellas, you know, it's a great film, but I guess she wasn't ready for it. <laughs> yeah. That's like his yeah, lesson that pieces of art aren't for everyone. <laughs> just also with his, like, obsession with everything being fucking old-timey in, he, in his house, and he has just, like, a pan-and-scan VHS of Goodfellas as well. 
Um, so I think since we're running so long, that'll basically wrap up Crumb. Emmett, do you want to give some some final summative thoughts on this film before assigning it a rating? The last thing I wanted to say was that I thought what I thought was really interesting is sort of formally how this is shot in in the Academy ratio mm-hmm. on sixteen millimeter, almost gives it like a very gorilla feel. Um, and and uh, to go back, almost, it almost feels like a Romer film from the eighties, like uh, like. Aviator's Life or The Green Ray or something like that. It has that sort of like interrupting reality or, mm-hmm. you know, mo- like as, as I described it, you know, sort of like turning real people into characters uh, feel. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and give this four. Um, I, it sort of drops a bit in my estimation from when I first encountered it. I, I had encountered more of from art. Uh, there's an Instagram account that posts a bunch of it that I like following. Um, but didn't hit me the same way as the first time I watched it. Yeah, I'm also gonna go four on this. What you said about it stylistically, it also did remind me of like some of the um of Jean Pierre Gorin, just like the way that the sixteen millimeter in Academy ratio, you know, filming California roads and people and stuff like that. Uh but it's also very much its own uh, film and like very reliant on the aesthetics of Crumb as well and I think mixing those inserts of his comics with uh, the 16mm photography is really effective and yeah it's like as interesting as these kind of like profile documentaries get and I'm gonna yeah stick with uh, four bullets um, yeah I'm gonna give this well, uh, four and a half loads <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just uh, one session for uh, one daily session for old Richard Crumb <laughs> um, yeah I have to give one out to another uh, Philly boy I had this at uh, five uh, bullets initially it diminished a little bit for me I mean mostly just because like th- th- it was the first time I had encountered Crumb and just was so wrapped up in his persona. Um, but it still holds water and is just amazing to watch. It's like so lighthearted in a way that I feel like you have to be like, I mean, lighthearted and also very miserable and depressing, but I feel like it gets that aspect of like poverty and just, you have to undercut like the misery with a lot of comedy if you don't if you're not if you don't want to kill yourself yeah i mean even though one of the the crumb brothers does yeah notice how he doesn't make that many jokes though he needed to make (laughs) (laughs) clearly the least learn to laugh (laughs) the least funny of the crumb family (laughs) laughter is the best medicine Um, the joker will tell you that much exactly i think he wrote that down just like crumb would but uh Four Bullets, yeah, this is a very fun documentary. You know, as like you know, it does get sad, does get showed the more miserable side, but there's just such a great absurdity to some of the just weird things that have happened in Richard Crumb's life and Robert, Robert, oh, Richard, Robert, you know, same thing. Um, <laughs> if he was Richard, Dicky cool. Crumb, yeah, I was gonna say call him Dicky Crumb, Dick Crumb, yeah, you call him Dick. Fuck. Well, you know, I'm sorry for disrespecting you, Robert. That was that was a, a misnomer on my part. I think you're a cool person. I like your drawings. You're not racist or sexist. You're just misunderstood. Um, it was a, it was a fun time. Hang it, you know, it's a hangout movie. If you want to hang out with Richard Crumb, this is the movie to do it. Um, rest in peace to his brother. He lies here. He never scored. Never had sex, and he yeah, died. Yeah, that's true. Kind of like that Beavis and Butthead grave. It's like here lies Charles Crumb. He never scored. <laughs> um 
Yeah, great stuff. I, it's one of the weird, rare profile documentaries I could see myself rewatching too. Yeah, and it at two full hours, uh, it kind of breezes by. Like mm-hmm. this kind of documentary usually feels like it's more of a ninety minuteer, but uh, this one enough interesting stuff to keep it going at a very steady pace. Yeah. Um, we don't have any emails this week, so we're done. Uh, uh, Emmett, is there anywhere? I mean, I guess you did plug your Instagram and Letterboxed in the beginning. Is there anywhere else online where the people can find you? Not really. Um, I, <laughs> I should probably get back to having an online presence. Um, but it's not like really said, worth Twitter it. Twitter gives me brain damage. Um, yeah. I mean, until someone comes out with a, a social media platform that won't, um, I, I don't know. Do you have a TikTok? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> What's By the way, I I said a fake TikTok, t- I said a fake TikTok account to follow last week. That was mine, and I really I haven't double checked it. I hope it's not like a racist teenager. <laughs> like, Even better, right? Yeah. Um, do you, what's that? Are you on Gab, Emmett? That like alt right version of Twitter? I've heard I've heard that maybe that'll work for you. Maybe you should try that one. Out. You on Patreon? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Uh, so that's going to pretty much do it for us this week on Extended Clip. You can always email us a question or a comment, literally anything. I'll read it on the air uh, or on the pod, uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. We're at extendedclip69 on Twitter. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at bitchfacepalace. I'm at tallboythinlegs. I think all of our letterboxes are connected to there. And uh, f- find Emmett on Letterbox and follow him, too. Oh, uh, so do you have a uh, double feature for next week planned already, JT? You're damn right I do, Eddie. <laughs> um, it is a... Because it's this is going to be our episode airing after Super Tuesday. I thought Ooh. I'd hit us uh, with a pro-union uh, double feature. Um, Harlan County, USA is Ooh. the A movie. Um, one of my personal faves. And then Gung Ho by ron howard is the b-side damn that's hard i I am a brick i am not aware of that ron howard or movie yeah um i think it's it's a factory gets taken over uh by a japanese company and i've heard uh michael keaton is in it collar type action i heard it's supposed to be kind of pretty bad and pretty racist so <laughs> oh, we'll see good. yeah yeah but pro, hey pro labor and that's what <laughs> even if it's racist that's what matters most that's what bernie sanders says <laughs> if the brochialists have taught us anything. Yeah. <laughs> class over race uh <laughs> gonna go ahead and uh end the podcast now before malcolm says anything else uh goodbye <laughs>